We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Man, welcome everybody. Steve back with another edition. I've lost count on the episodes. I think we're on six, five, six. This is number six. Six. We're back again with Michael Graney. Thank you again for doing this. And uh, I think this is, uh, yeah, number six on socialism with how to change church doctrine, I think is right. Yeah. Catholic church doesn't, how to change Christian doctrine. Okay. Which is what the whole you know the whole movement of the new things socialism modernism esotericism or new age it's what it's all about you have to change catholic doctrine so that people will accept this otherwise you couldn't eliminate uh you know traditional political forms traditional you know marriage and family forms and especially for this subject uh traditional organized religion which were all the enemy of socialism because socialism was intended as the democratic religion, which was going to combine church, state, and family into one big lump. Huh. Didn't matter if it was just the local group or a national group or a global group. It was all gonna be one organization that handled everything. And this is why, for instance, Robert Owen, you know, the, the English manufacturer, rich capitalist hyphen socialist, See, most people don't realize a lot of the early socialists were either capitalists themselves or were avidly courting the capitalists to get the money. And Robert Owens made his notorious Declaration of Mental Independence speech in New Harmony, Indiana on July 4th, 1826. He was from England, but he had bought the town of Harmony from the Rapites, they were German, uh, from Pennsylvania, and named it New Harmony established his utopian community about 30 miles from where I used to live and then declared that the object of his program was to abolish private property, abolish marriage and family and abolish organized religion. Of course, he meant abolish private property except for his, get rid of all marriage and family except for his and every organized religion except for the one that he invented for himself. Now, but to get back to today, <laughs> actually, oh, Fulton Sheen, when he made his uh, declaration of dependence, was actually responding to Robert Owen almost a century before. Huh. A lot of people don't realize where Fulton Sheen got a lot of his stuff. For example, you know, that his life is worth living. Mm -hmm. That was a riff on William Hurl Malick's Is Life Worth Living, which was a response to all these nutty new Christians and positivists in the 19th century. Huh. See, Monsignor Ronald Knox, who was a teacher of Fulton Sheen, really loved William Hurl Malick, who was also associated with John Henry Newman. All this stuff ties together. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to write a book on Newman, and I started piecing together who all these people were, and it's astonishing. You know, Charles Kingsley, 
who attacked Newman, which resulted in the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, he actually was related by marriage to Newman's best friend at college. I thought you were going to say related to you. No, no way. <laughs> I'm not talking to Englishmen. I'm, I'm, I'm descended from Irish, German, and Swiss. So that dirty socialist doesn't get in there. <laughs> Excuse me, that dirty socialist, depending on which ethnic group is predominant at the moment. Uh-huh. Anyway, what we see in the church today, and this is the result of all this nuttiness that's been going on, and I don't think there's anyone who won't say that it isn't nuttiness, whichever side you're on, of course, what they're calling nuttiness may be a different thing, is you have a paradox in today's Catholic Church that you have religious conservatives, traditionalists, and even reactionaries who are espousing social, economic, and political, politically radical ideas and programs. And I, I saw this in the Wall Street Journal just a, a week or two ago. They were reviewing a book called, uh, what was it again? Oh yeah, Strange Rights by this Tara Burton. And the reviewer, I want to read this book as soon as I get the chance, because the reviewer described the author as a traditional Catholic, you know, a conservative Catholic, but with progressive ideas. In other words, religiously traditional, but socially radical or progressive, basically a socialist. Yeah. And I thought, well, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. She's a square circle. <laughs> I started to think. There are a lot of people who describe themselves as traditionalist Catholics, conservative Catholics. I mean, this morning in the Washington Post, I saw Joe Biden described as a traditional practicing Catholic in one of the columns. I saw that. I thought, I thought, holy cow. But he can consider himself a traditional Catholic if he you know, likes the form of the mass or even the old mass and you know obeys all the other rules or i should say regulations but then is wildly deviant from what the catholic church actually teaches in 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 its social programs because you separate them you you separate the intellect from the will the the uh reason from faith you have to otherwise you can't even look at yourself in the mirror in the morning anyway the uh I gotta stop saying anyway, <laughs> and basically, I, even though it's probably useful as a segue. Uh, so what you basically, <laughs> there I did it again. There you go. You have traditional religious forms, but progressive social and economic doctrines. And this is what Fulton Sheen mentioned explicitly in his first two books. The first one was in 1925, it was his doctoral thesis, God and Intelligence in Modern Philosophy in Light of the Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas really snappy title, uh, had a forward by G.K. Chesterton. They called it an introduction, it was a forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 1927, he came out with a more popular version of it, which he consi- uh, considered a, a continuation of it, called Religion Without God. Much easier book to read, but both are well worth it if you can wade through and you know what Sheen is doing in them. What he is doing is contrasting the giant shift in you know basic christian doctrine he wasn't just focusing on catholics he at that time he considered that the catholic church was pretty safe mm-hmm. he had only run up a cup against a couple of you know deviations and problems 
which as we will see in the, our next exciting episode, we're actually covering up some uh, very, very bad situation. Uh, but she noticed that there were people who seemed completely unaware that they were doing this, accepting these radical, progressive, socialist, modernist, even new age ideas, and still considering themselves Orthodox Christians, whether Protestant or Catholic. I mean, Sheen's stuff was, was universal, Catholic with a small C. I mean, it was obviously Catholic with a capital C, but he appealed to anybody with a grain of common sense. I think I remember reading in his autobiography, Treasure and Clay, that he got the most fan letters, you know, proportionately from Jews, the next from Protestants, and the smallest amount from Catholics, which I thought was unusual. But, you know, there are actually Jews and Protestants who might actually have common sense. I got there's a, I saw a guy just the other day comment on the channel saying, I'm not I'm not Catholic, but this is the reason why I subscribe to this channel. Yeah, I mean, watching my our videos. associate, my associate isn't even a Christian, but he uh, adhere he believes that the Catholic Church has the most common sense, rational, social teachings of any body in the world, whether uh, domestic, religious, or political. I mean, he's Jewish, but he doesn't practice that. But he does practice Catholic social teaching, believe it or not. <laughs> with a few slight arguments we have back but who I mean who doesn't have arguments uh, and and here we go again with what I keep saying you've seen this before I mean this is the same thing Orestes Brownson pointed out in the 1840s soon after his conversion to Catholicism he was these new things they give the appearance of Orthodox Christian thought or even common sense but the substance has been completely changed. And it's the chief means by which Satan, you know, and deceives the modern world. That, that's Brownson's, the way Brownson put it. As he said, you know, as I said the last time, or was the time before that, says, surely Satan has here in socialism done his best, almost outdone himself, and would, if it were possible, deceive the very elect so that no flesh should be saved. I mean, and I think Brownson knew what he was talking about. He started out as a socialist. Mm -hmm. and they, he all, let's see, he was also a Unitarian. And uh, what else was he? Whatever, you name it, Brownson was it. But the moment he converted to Catholicism, he never turned back. Before that, he was like, you know, what year is this? And so what is Brownson? But they, they called him Weathercock Brownson because he seemed to change every time. But the moment he converted to Catholicism, that was it. He never looked back. Just be careful what you read before his conversion. <laughs> now, the whole thing, in my opinion, started in 1906 with the publication of Monsignor John A. Ryan's doctoral thesis, A Living Wage. And this was followed up 10 years later with what he considered his magnum opus, Distributive Justice, in 1916. Uh, Basically, and you've heard this before, this is warmed over and expanded Georgism, the thought of Henry George and, and Father McGlynn, whom he considered heroes. Uh, it was like the Fabians, the Fabian Socialists. The Fabian Society started out 
inspired by the, the, by the program of Henry George. And I have that in a history of the Fabian Society written by the founders. Mm -hmm. uh, all Ryan did essentially was extend George's theories from land to all forms of capital. And if you look, if you really want to, uh, you know, you read the first part of Distributive Justice, it's a rather thick book. Uh, it's kind of boring to me. I mean, a lot of these people who are into this stuff really think it's great, although I have a sneaky hunch they may not have read it. <laughs> because once you start reading, you thought, this doesn't sound right somehow. Uh, but what it is, what he did was, it, 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 the whole book was written to justify distribution on the basis of need, which of course was also the point of a living wage 10 years earlier. And it, the, the whole first part of the book is on Henry George's theory of title. Well, if you're familiar with Henry George's work and you've read Progress and Poverty, again, a very long book, which only a Georges could get enthusiastic about. I read the whole thing and it kind of put me to sleep. Uh, until I got to page 406, in which he discussed his theory of title very briefly. It doesn't matter who owns legal title as long as the state controls all the income and how property may be used. In this way, and this is almost an exact quote, I could get the exact quote if I took the time to do it. The state may become the universal landlord without calling herself so. So to Henry George, who held legal title was completely irrelevant. He was fully aware of the legal doctrine that it's control and enjoyment of the fruits that determines who is the real owner. Now, I got this from an actual lawyer, my associate, who attended the University of Chicago Law School in the late 50s. And he said, this really threw him. You, suppose you have A, you know, we use A and B to denote persons, who owns Blackacre. Blackacre is like Richard Rowe and John Doe for, for an estate. And he conveys all control and income to B. Who is the real owner of Blackacre? B. But A owns legal title. Doesn't matter. B enjoys the fruits and exercises control. So all Henry George was saying in his theory of title was that it doesn't matter who has legal title, it's whoever has control over the enjoyment of the fruits and you know, direction of the property. Uh, what, oh, excuse me, what is owned. Uh, so the whole first part of distributive justice is a discussion on how bad Henry George's theory of title was without at once explaining what it was. It's a red herring to try to show that he was distancing himself from Henry George while at the same time using Henry George to determine his political and economic theories, which he got both from Henry George and from Ignatius Loyola Donnelly, whom we covered the last time, who was a an interesting personality, as we found out. Very interesting. So what did Ryan accomplish with distributive justice and earlier with a living wage? He instituted pure moral relativism. The end justifies the means. He shifted natural law from the intellect to the will. Now this is an, another interesting subject which we will not get into, but except briefly to state that 
for the Thomists, excuse me, the intellect and the will are conjoined in a single act. There is no distinction. With God, to think is to do. Or I should say, to think is to be. There's no distinction between God's nature, self-realized in his intellect, and God's will. Now, the problem comes in in that human beings have free will, which is a gift from God. We can actually go against God's will. And so to people who are trying to you know, avoid the implications of the natural law based on God's nature, you know, like don't kill, don't steal, you know, private property, because thou shalt not steal necessarily implies the validity of private property. Otherwise, it wouldn't be theft, would it? But to get around that, you have to change from what you can observe about God's nature reflected in human nature, because we are made in God's image and likeness, to your interpretation of what you accept as God's will, like the Ten Commandments. Well, what if you're not a Jew, a Christian, or a Muslim and reject the Ten Commandments? You don't believe that's anything God said. Well, then that means the natural law doesn't apply to you. Either that or you're a heretic and you can be eliminated, or you're not human and you could be rounded up in a death camp or something. And because you're a useless eater or some such thing. <coughs> now, what, and, okay, that, that's the whole intellect and the will argument. Very, some, you know, summarized very shortly and briefly. I have a, I, a friend of mine is a philosophy professor would say, well, you didn't discuss this, that, and the other thing. Well, we don't have time. <laughs> Philosophers will always split hairs because that's how they make their money. Uh, so Ryan used modernism to justify socialism and socialism to justify his modernism. It's a closed circle. And what he did also philosophically was in distributive justice, he eliminated commutative justice, which is the most basic form of justice. The difference is commutative justice is equality of exchange. This is considered the justice of contracts, of the market, uh, of legal justice, and uh, I, sh I should say judicial justice, because legal justice has a different meaning in philosophy than it does in jurisprudence. And as Pius XI remarked, and I don't remember which encyclical, he said, commutative justice is the most fundamental form of justice without which all the others are, from which all the others are derived. So here was Ryan displacing commutative justice with distributive justice, which he defined as distribution on the basis of need, which is not, which violates, of course, commutative justice because justice, distributive justice in the classical sense means that you, if you, for instance, contribute 10% to some endeavor, you suffer 10% of the loss or get 10% of the gains. It's a, it's a proportional justice as opposed to commutative justice, which is an equality of justice. And by kicking out commutative justice, what Ryan did was eliminate the whole idea of equality of any kind, whether of exchange or anything else. Because if you distribute on the basis of need, well, what did you contribute? to the whole endeavor. 
Well, nothing. Of course, that doesn't mean that you are not obligated in charity to give someone what they need, but that's, as Leo XIII clearly stated in Rerum Novarum, that is not something that can be enforced by human law. And he was explicit about that. So of course, Ryan, Monsignor Ryan reinterpreted Rerum Novarum to mean exactly what he said, that you must distribute on the basis of need, despite everything that Leo XIII said. He didn't really mean that. I'm not exactly sure how you, people can accept that, but that's another issue. Now, uh, what this did was basically institute fascism and socialism as the interpretation, the authentic interpretation of Catholic teaching. And this was recognized in 1931 by this Reverend Edward Cahill. He was a Jesuit in Ireland. And in 1931, he published a book, The Framework of a Christian State, and essentially endorsed socialism and fascism. And there was a, a short section comparing Monsignor John A. Ryan's thought with that of Henry George. Now, he wasn't, a, uh, Cahill was not against fascism and socialism. He was in favor of it and was commenting favorably upon Ryan's program, which of course Ryan denied was either socialist or fascist. And yet here was Cahill saying, oh, of course it is, because this is what it is, which is a good thing for him. I think he may have been either a support, a supporter of, or even an inspiration for General Duffy's blue shirts, the Irish fascists at that time. Everybody and his brother was becoming a fascist then. Uh, are you familiar with the works of P.G. Woodhouse? No. Oh, well, you, you've got to read the, the short stories about Roderick Spode, founder and leader of the Saviors of Britain, otherwise known as the Black Shorts. <laughs> as far as Bertie Wooster says to Jeeves, surely don't you mean uh, shirts? Says, no, sir, all the shirt colors were taken. <laughs> <laughs> That's Woodhouse for you. <laughs> uh, so, but what is extremely interesting about Ryan's program is that he didn't really come up with it, even though he made it sound like he did. If you examine it and you know a little bit of history, what you find out is that his program was similar to that of Coxey's army. Now, in 1894, a theosophist slash populist by the name of Jacob Seckler Coxey Jr. led a march on Washington. This was Coxey's army. It converged from all parts of the country. And he was demanding inflation financed jobs and welfare. In other words, the government would just print up money to pay people to engage in public works. And if they couldn't do that, you just give them the money. And of course, if you're familiar with Keynesian economics, that sounds just like it. And uh, this, your parents might have heard uh, about Coxey's army. Uh, when I was very little, I still remember hearing some people say, oh, you're as dirty as Coxey's army, or you're as hungry as Coxey's army. They were like a plague of locusts. The, and my great grandfather may even have ridden, uh, may even have driven one of the trains that, you know, that the railroads allowed them to use to ride for free to get people part of the way to Washington. And <laughs> oh, do you remember in the old Warner Brothers cartoons? Occasionally, you'd see a sign that says "Keep off the grass." Yeah, yeah, that was a populist slogan because of Coxey's army. 
Jacob Coxey was going to make a speech on the steps of the Capitol. And when he got there, they informed him, you don't have a permit to make a speech on the steps of the Capitol. And so he said, well, then I'm going to walk over to the lawn and make my speech there. So he walked over to the lawn, whereupon the Park Service arrested him for walking on the grass. <laughs> Keep off the grass immediately became a populist slogan to represent the oppression of government. Fact is, they weren't going to let him make a speech no matter what. So, of course, during the height of the New Deal, they allowed him now in his 90s to come doddering up and make his speech from the steps of the Capitol that he was going to make back in 1894. He was then lauded as a great hero instead of the socialist theosophist that he was. I'm not looking at this up. I mean, this, I have evidence for all of this. I was just blown away on the Cahill thing. Now the Keep the Grass thing, I'm going, what else? (laughs) (laughs) Now, from here on, I'm going to be deriving most of my analysis from Dr. Franz Hermann Müller, who was a student of Heinrich Pesch, you know, the great solidarist economist. He was a Jesuit. And Dr. Müller was also a member of Der Klinikswinterkreis. This was a discussion group in Germany, found, co-founded by Dr. Heinrich uh, Roman, who ended up teaching political science at Georgetown University. I knew one of his students, and I've read both his books, at least the ones that have been translated into English. I still haven't been able to find another one that he wrote that I might be able to limp through in German, which relates to what to Robert Bellarmine, which we discussed you know, briefly before the show. Uh, and the Königswinterkreis was a very important organization before the Nazis dissolved it. And it sent two of its members in 1931 to Rome to consult with Pius XI on the writing of Quadragesimo Anno, you know, the encyclical that was written on the 40th anniversary of Rerum Novarum. And these were Oswald von der Bruyning, a Jesuit, and Gustav Gunlach, another Jesuit. Uh, You'll hear in many circles today that Oswald von Nelbreuning was the real author of Quadragesimo Anno. In my opinion, without going into looking at all the drafts and everything else, what he did was write it at Pius XI, draft it at Pius XI's request, whereupon Pius XI then went over it and made some corrections, particularly adding, you know, greater emphasis on the condemnation of socialism and the various aspects of modernism, which he also had, for some strange reason, Pison had a thing about modernism. In fact, his very first encyclical, he really went after hammer and tongs, and in Studiorum Ducem, on his encyclical on St. Thomas Aquinas, he pointed out that the modernists fear no one so much as they fear Thomas Aquinas. And ironically, later, Oswald von Nelbreuning distanced himself from Quadragesimo Anno on the grounds that despite what Pius XI had said about socialism and condemning it so strongly in the encyclical that people might still take the encyclical as endorsing some form of socialism, which they do. I had a fellow, was it last year or the year before, tell me when I quoted parts of the encyclical condemning socialism, he said, well, you just don't understand. I have read those passages and I've skimmed the rest of the encyclical so I know that it's supporting democratic capital uh, socialism. I said, 
Oh, you mean the passage that's explicitly condemning religious socialism of any kind? Is that what you mean? That's when he stopped talking to me. Uh, now, <laughs> this Dr. Mueller wrote a book called The Church and the Social Question. It was published in 1984, and I have a vague recollection that it may be a slight reworking of an earlier book, but don't, don't take that for certain. And in it, he, in a rather low-key and Germanic professorial way, kind of shredded Monsignor Ryan's programs and proposals, as well as his basic thought. And as Dr. Mueller, you know, analyzed Monsignor Ryan's thought, uh, the basic thing was that according to Ryan, which is according to Mueller, uh, Raymond Novarum justified a gigantic expansion of state power that was explicitly repudiated in the document itself. I mean, if you read, for instance, I believe it's paragraph seven, it says, there is no need to bring in the state. God has given man everything he needs to take care of himself without the state. I mean, the state is an essential social tool but it's not supposed to take care of us from the cradle to the grave. We're supposed to take care of ourselves. And according to Monsignor John A. Ryan in his social program, which came out in 1909, labor is the only legitimate source of income. In other words, forget inheritance and property income or what you, you know, gain from profits from business or anything else, only labor is the legitimate source of income. All profit must be subject to tax for social purposes. And as Mueller points out, this came out of German socialism, mostly Marx, but there are other German socialists besides Marx. In other words, profit is evil. It is surplus value stolen from the workers and from the consumers. Therefore, it should be taxed away and used to benefit society. And Mueller also commented that Ryan's ideas were close to Henry George's ideas. This is despite the, despite the fact that many of Ryan's, Monsignor Ryan's fans today insist that there is no evidence that Henry George influenced Monsignor Ryan's thought in any way. I actually have a very learned paper trying to make that case. Uh, another thing, unearned increments in the value of land must be taxed away. Well, that's Henry George's single tax. All profits from, you know, from holding land all rent from land it should be the 100% taxed away by the state. And of course, used for social purposes. Well, what other kind of purposes is the state supposed to use it for anyway? But that's a... Now, unearned incomes through stock and com commodity exchange manipulations should be prevented by law. Well, that kind of gets into infringing on the rights of private property. Speculation and manipulation should, of course, be, uh, you know, illegal, and they are. But what do you mean by manipulation? According to people like Ryan, actually owning these things and buying and selling them is manipulation. Ownership itself is manipulation. I mean, you got to be careful about what words you use because these people will twist them, at you know, at every opportunity and give whole new meanings. It's like usury itself. In Catholic social teaching, usury means taking a profit from something that does not make a profit. This is why Vix Paravenit, 
you know, the night, the 18, excuse me, 1746, I'm living in the wrong century. The 1746 document condemning usury and other dishonest profit. Well, just the title of that implies that there must be honest profit. So that the people say that, oh, all profit is usury. Well, that doesn't even make sense because what you're saying is that there is no difference between dishonest profit and honest profit. Uh, now, also, according to Dr. Mueller, Monsignor Ryan assumed the entire message of Raymond Novarum could be summed up in a single sentence of the encyclical. That's a logical fallacy, and I don't remember the name of it, but it, but it is one. And the single sentence is in paragraph 36. Whenever the general interest of any particular class suffers or is threatened with harm, which can in no other way be met or prevented, the public authority must step in to deal with it. Now, what Monsignor Ryan did was edit out the can be handled in no other way. In other words, what the act of social justice of uh, Pius XI did that he defined was that, well, you know, when you're faced with a social situation and the individual cannot deal with it, you organize with others in your milieu and take action. If that doesn't work, you ask for the help from other levels of society. If that doesn't work, as a last resort, you go to the state. The state is the last resort to solve social problems. It is the first resort to take care of the environment within which problems can be solved. Monsignor John A. Ryan simply reinterpreted that to mean, oh, the state is to take care of everybody and solve all problems as the first recourse, not the last. So Miller's comment on this, Dr. Miller's comment was, Ryan relates that the first time he read Rerum Novarum, he was most impressed by the passage in section 28. I said paragraph 36, I used a different edition. The, the, the current one is paragraph 36. Miller used uh, paragraph 28 in his edition, which of course all the socialists were like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about because you used a different number. No, just a different edition. Uh, actually, this passage is a clear statement of the principle of subsidiarity. In other words, subsidiarity is not that the highest level does it or the lowest level does it, but the most appropriate level does it, which tends to be the lower levels because they're the ones closest to the problem. But for a national problem, well, the state may very well be the appropriate one to, to handle it rather than a small local group. But at that time, Ryan seems to have been fascinated by the Pope's acceptance of state intervention and overlooked the important qualifications made by Leo, such as there is no need to bring in the state or this does not come under human law. You know, all those uncomfortable little things you just kind of brush aside. Because Ryan all through his life felt that what governments normally do and what appears to be practically necessary may be regarded as belonging to the proper functions of government a rather pragmatic, pragma, excuse me, a rather prag, prag, <laughs> okay, I'll learn to talk one of these days. I have a college education. I went to high school. A rather pragmatic point of view. Now, you remember, was it last week we mentioned certain words that authors will use? Like Mark Twain, whenever you see in Huckleberry Finn, the word alas, you know somebody's gonna be telling a whopper. And 
Monsignor John A. Ryan, whenever he used the word indeed, it meant that he was about to make an assertion he wasn't going to prove. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Mueller's word was pragmatic. And whenever he used the word pragmatic, what he meant was modernist. And the end justifies the means, you know, the basic principle of the new things. So when he was calling, you know, Ryan a pragmatist or saying that his programs were pragmatic, and he does this several times in his book, what he was saying was that Ryan was a modernist because he was just tossing aside, you know, the principles of natural law to get what he wanted. It was pragmatic rather than, you know, sticking to authentic Catholic doctrine. Uh, now, uh, I got a little bit ahead of myself there. I, have, I keep flipping my little, my notes, and sometimes I can't even read them, <laughs> which accounts for these, some of these odd pauses here. Uh, now, Ryan's program, this was outlined, or actually detailed, I should say, in a program of social reform by legislation. This was Catholic published New York Catholic World Press in 1909. I think it was reprinted with a lot of errors and very badly edited uh, about 10 years later when the, when the American bishops came out with their statement, which was based on Ryan's program. <clears throat> now, not everything Ryan's, Monsignor Ryan said was bad. I mean, you, even a lie has to have some truth in it or people won't believe it. And it has some, his program has some good or at least some debatable features on the surface anyway. You have to realize that he often changed the meanings of things. So he did advocate minimum wage and maximum hours laws. Well, when people are in a position that they don't have free bargaining power, yeah, you're kind of stuck with minimum wage and maximum hours, otherwise, employers will impose anything they want on people. But that should only be viewed as a temporary expedient until people can be empowered so that they can bargain freely and won't be taken advantage of. It's not a permanent solution. Yet Monsignor Ryan proposed all of this as a permanent solution to everything. It also, it was also for compulsory arbitration. Now, that meant instead of strikes, which Pius XI said the same thing. Now, what is interesting is that when Fulton Sheen came out in the 1930s and supported Pius XI in Quadragesimo Anno on arbitration instead of strikes, he was attacked by Ryan and Ryan's students. And yet all he was doing was agreeing with Ryan and Pius XI in what Ryan himself had said 20 years before. Now, he was also in favor of, this is Ryan, state employment bureaus. Well, yes, if, you know, people are having trouble finding work and employers are having trouble finding, you know, workers and private employment agencies aren't helping, I can see a role for state employment bureaus. Of course, in the mind of a socialist or a modernist, that means that you show up and you're told to work here or else. But the idea of a state employment bureau is a good idea, depending on how you understand it. And unemployment insurance. I can't say I'm against it. I just want to know more about what he meant by it. Usually what that ends up meaning is that 
it, it can actually encourage people not to work like this $600 surcharge that, you know, I read in the Wall Street Journal, was it last week or the week before, employers are having trouble trying to get people go to go back to work because they're making much more money on unemployment. Exactly. Well, the, the answer to that is, and I wrote a blog on this, is that, well, then why don't you make it, you know, advantageous for people to come back to work? Cut them in on ownership. Maybe you can't pay them more, but you can cut them in on ownership. That way, they have a vested interest in the success of the company, regardless how much somebody else is paying them not to do something, it will be far more to their benefit to do something. You know, the devil finds hands for idle hands, finds work for idle hands. You can't use common sense in an era where common sense is rejected. Common sense. I'll, let me write that one down. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, now we get to the, I'll call them questionable aspects of Monsignor Ryan's social program. And these are the ones that kind of make me a little queasy. For example, state labor colonies for recalcitrants and hardcore unemployables. Now, remember, none of this comes from me. I take it all from Dr. Franz Müller's analysis. Every time I see state labor colonies, all I can think of is Auschwitz and that sign over the gate, Arbeit macht frei, work makes free. I mean, a lot of the concentration camps were ostensibly established to put people to work who wouldn't work otherwise. They're criminals for not working. I mean, I, I'm, I've been reading the history of Poland in preparation for another book, and it, I just finished the bit on the concentration camps, and it, even the cleaned up versions you read in, in the short histories are enough to turn your stomach. Regimentation of the workforce. Well, that's just one of Marx's uh, industrial armies from the Communist Manifesto in 1848. As I said, there really isn't anything new in anything Monsignor Ryan said. And now, of course, the favorite, nationalization of railroads, power companies, waterworks, municipal transportation, and telephones. And remember, this is not socialism. At least, according to Monsignor Ryan, it's not socialism. Wealth above a predetermined level to be confiscated and redistributed. But it's not socialism. Now, in 1919, the Catholic War Council of the American bishops came out with a proposal, with a program, and it incorporated many of the elements of Monsignor Ryan's proposal. In particular, the one that really got Franz Miller annoyed was the industry in which a man is employed should provide him with all that is necessary to meet all the needs of his entire life. So in other words, the private sector employer is to take care of somebody from the cradle to the grave, regardless of his actual value to the company, regardless whether he's an owner of the company or not, he should get the benefits of ownership without owning. And if that doesn't work, the state should take care of him. Basically, everyone is to be a complete dependent, you know, a condition of permanent dependency, which if you're familiar with history and law, Permanent dependent is another word for slave. I mean, in ancient Roman law, of course, there was no, di no difference between a man's children and a, and, a, and a man's slaves because they were all completely dependent. The problem was that a slave couldn't be emancipated. 
whereas a child was expected to be emancipated. Now, what Dr. Mueller commented on this was, and this is another example of his understatement, it is hard to understand why neither Ryan nor the Catholic War Council, which was the American bishops, realized, or so it seems, the corporatist, which is another word for fascist, implications of this statement. Uh, yeah, they may not have realized it because as we'll see, I think they were avoiding the problem. They were hoping that this couldn't be what it said it said. This is actually a good thing, right? Okay, the question being, how did Monsignor Ryan convince so many people that what he was talking about was authentic Catholic teaching? Um, he basically, how did he reorient everything that the Catholic Church was saying? Well, the first way of doing it was he carefully dodged any questions about whether his stuff was socialism and fascism. He was very good about that. He claimed that such questions were near, mere name calling. So this is not refutation. You're just calling names. I'm not going to talk even talk about that. It's not worth it. He also had the famous line, I will not dignify that with an answer. I said, but it's an honest question. I don't understand what you're saying. Is it so? It sounds socialist and fascist. Why isn't it? I will not dignify that with an answer. I mean, how do you like that? You take, you take the high road there. Uh, actually, <laughs> my, my associate, I mean, I, I've gotten this from other so-called Catholic intellectuals. I have it in writing, and I'm not going to tell you who wrote it because people would recognize the name. And he says, I could refute everything you say, but I'm not going to take the time. Well, why don't you refute me and settle me for good rather than talking behind my back and telling people how evil I am and how anti-Catholic? Why don't you could settle me for good forever? just by refuting it, but you're not going to take the time. I have another one, a very prominent Catholic commentator and so-called intellectual, who, when I argued with him some of his statements about private property, which he didn't seem to understand, I, you know, I wrote a very careful analysis, seven pages, you know, explaining you know, the legal basis and the Catholic social teaching in the encyclicals, and all he said back was, you clearly don't understand Catholic social teaching and you don't have the capacity to do so, so I'm not gonna waste my time arguing with you. What? Well, that's a real honest response. My, uh, now, here I will name names. Dr. Milton Friedman. My associate had a couple of run-ins with him. Back in 1967, they were both on a uh, commission or some kind of conference on the draft. And Norm, Dr. Norman Curlin, my associate, took the same position as Milton Friedman. He advocated an all-volunteer military rather than conscription. And at the luncheon afterwards, they sat down next to each other. And my associate, who was, you know, Lewis Kelso's Washington Council, Lewis Kelso invented the employee stock ownership plan by means of which Workers without savings can purchase shares in the company and pay for them with the future dividends of the, of the stock itself and thereby become owners of the company without, bar, you know, you know, without uh, having to get more pay and you know, purchase the shares. And so Norm turns to Friedman and says, what do you think of the ideas of Lewis Kelso? 
Friedman got up, wouldn't even talk to him, and stomped out of the room and never came back. Probably missing a delicious rubber chicken lunch. And then later, Norm, you know, wrote to Friedman and said, you know, what objections do you have to Kelso's ideas? Friedman says, I'm not going to take the time to respond to that. Just take my word for it that they won't work. But, well, what kind of answer is that? Well, he was a, Friedman was also one time interviewed by Jamie Johnson, Johnson, you know, the heir to the Johnson and Johnson fortune, or one of them. And Jamie was asking him, you know, well, what is, you know, how do you justify, you know, the, you know, the, the, the extreme concentration of wealth under capitalism and that sort of thing? And Friedman threw him out of the office. He was going like this, you know, get out of here. I won't discuss this. The only time I ever felt sorry for Phil Donahue, believe it or not, was when he had Milton Friedman on his show. And he, for once, Donahue was not baiting his guest. He was asking an honest question. And there's a video on YouTube about this that shows the segment from the Donahue show. And he was saying, you know, how do you, you know, under capitalism, there, you know, there are extreme concentrations of wealth and, you know, there are, there are horrible conditions and, you know, people go in want. How do you justify this? Friedman changed the question and started ranting and raving about how good greed is. And are you some kind of, you know, Nazism never did this. Actually, under the Nazis, most people lived better than they had before the war. <laughs> uh, you know. Capitalism has lifted more people out of poverty than out of the system. You know, capitalism, greed is good. He actually said that. But that wasn't the question. He said, you know, how do you justify it? You don't just justify it by saying, oh, it's good. And it, it's not a even response. I but, remember the article of, uh, I think it was on Mises, uh, Mises Institute of uh, the defense of Scrooge. Yeah. Well, you know, I've done a couple of blogs on Ebenezer. And the one thing that Charles Dickens points out is that Scrooge was an honest man. You could trust his word. I mean, the first couple of paragraphs of A Christmas Carol said that Scrooge's word was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. See, this was Dickens' way, of course, of saying that you can believe what follows because Ebenezer Scrooge would never tell a lie, never. And if Scrooge attested to something, it's because it happened. So that this crazy story about, you know, spirits coming to you and converting you and everything else, well, it had to be true because Scrooge said it. Marley was as dead as a doornail. How do we know that? Because Scrooge signed the register. And if Scrooge said it, it was true. So a lot of people miss that. You know, even the movie characterizations make him out as some kind of thief. Scrooge would never cheat you. He might screw to the wall on a deal, but it's because that's what he was legally entitled to. He would never steal, except legally. <laughs> now, the other way that Monsignor John A. Ryan got out from under, you know, any accusations was that he claimed that the policy of public ownership is gaining ground every day in every country. And 
No country has any thought of reverting to the other system. Well, what other system? According to his mindset, you had capitalism and socialism. And notice that he said he wouldn't say socialism or fascism. He'd say policy of public ownership. Well, how did Marx define socialism? The abolition of private property in capital. And so how does Monsignor Ryan define his program? Policy of public ownership. Socialism without calling it socialism. And if you call it socialism, he won't dignify that with a response. Now, even so, there were some important clerics and some, you know, very prominent laity who expressed grave doubts about Monsignor Ryan's program. This was back, still back in 1910. Uh, I won't give the, the names because they won't mean anything. I, I remember I, I got them out of biographies of uh, Cardinal Gibbons and Archbishop Ireland. And I was looking over the sense, I never heard of these people. I never even heard of these companies. But over a century ago, they were very important people. Now, Unfortunately, both Archbishop Ireland and Cardinal Gibbons avoided confronting Monsignor Ryan. Now remember, they had already, back when Leo XIII issued Testem Benevolencia Nostre, they had essentially denied that there was a problem with modernism and thus with socialism. And having denied that, and having thought that the whole McGlynn and uh, Henry George thing had been settled, they couldn't quite bring themselves, or in my opinion, to admit that it really did exist, that they had goofed. And as a result, the problem that they said didn't exist kept coming back. Uh, so, and as, as I said, Monsignor Ryan's program actually expanded on George and McGlynn and brought them back with much greater force than they had before. Now, why did, you know, I, Archbishop Ireland and Cardinal Gibbons, the two most prominent churchmen of their day in the United States, and even internationally, uh, not the most prominent, but very prominent internationally, why did they let this go by? It was so obvious what was going on. Well, they had painted themselves into a corner for one thing. And there actually appears to have been a policy of avoidance and making no public statement on it. I, you know, this is all my opinion, but I think that they were just kind of hoping it would go away. I mean, and again, in my opinion, I think that there are a lot of bishops and cardinals in the United States and throughout the world who are hoping the same thing when they're faced with an unpleasant situation. There's a scandal pops up. Oh boy, maybe if we ignore it or cover it up, it will go away. Are they being dishonest? Well, they're not doing it themselves, but you might as well because you're letting it go on. And this is what happened, in my opinion, with Monsignor Ryan. Gibbons, admittedly, was in very poor health, especially toward the end of his life. I think he died in 1921. But even in 1910, he wasn't doing very well. And in one of his biographies, I read that on the envelope that the bishop's program of 1919 was delivered to him in, that's not quite grammatical, but you, but you know what I mean. Uh, the secretary wrote on the outside of it that Gibbons 
didn't have time to read it and he wouldn't comment on because he didn't have time to read it because he hadn't read it. I've read the statements. It's only a couple of pages long. If he wasn't reading it, it was because he didn't want to read it. He was deliberately avoiding it. And Archbishop Ireland, I have a sneaking hunch that despite the fact that Monsignor Ryan said that he spoke with him and got his endorsement, that he wasn't telling the truth. Ireland was not the type to let something go by, uh, sometimes even to his own disadvantage. Uh, but that's another whole subject. He was a friend of Theodore Roosevelt and possibly Judge Peter Stenger Grosskup, uh, about whom you have no idea who I'm talking about. <laughs> this is the whole explanation of who they are. Uh, but Gibbons, I think, was avoiding Ryan and Archbishop Ireland. Ryan was in his diocese initially. And I think that he was avoiding the whole issue simply because Ryan was such an avid populist supporter of Henry George and McGlynn and of Ignatius Loyola Donnelly, whom Archbishop Ireland detested. I mean, Donnelly was a Democrat slash populist slash socialist slash whatever it took to get himself elected. And Archbishop Ireland, for good or for worse, was an ardent Republican and supported the Republican line, you know, to the hilt, which did not make him popular with a lot of his, uh, a lot of the people in his diocese. But at least it was straightforward and honest. Uh, the funny thing is that uh, Ryan claimed Archbishop Ireland's endorsement, inspiration and guidance. He said this in his autobiography. And again, in my opinion, he was probably lying. Uh, he actually compared Archbishop Ireland and Donnelly as if they were saying the same things in many instances, and they clearly were not. The Pioneer Press, which was always attacking Donnelly, was Archbishop Ireland's publisher. They published his two books, you know, with on, on the speeches and articles and talks he gave, all of which contradicted flatly everything Donnelly was saying. And here was Monsignor Ryan in his autobiography saying, oh, they were saying substantially the same thing. Not if you read them. I mean, that autobiography is one of the best fantasy works you'll ever read. <laughs> and he also claimed that Archbishop Ireland examined a living wage and approved it. And he also claimed that Gibbons pleaded with him to teach at Catholic University. Now, here's the interesting part. At a time when Monsignor Ryan claimed he was being accused of heresy and was daily threatened with excommunication and was being attacked on all sides by these reactionaries and conservatives, why didn't he happen to mention these endorsements? That would have settled his critics immediately. There would have been no contest. Here are the two most prominent churchmen in America endorsing him, but you're silent about it. The only time you ever mention it is 30 years later in your autobiography and then you don't cite a source for it. You just say it happened. And you wonder why I'm suspicious about it. Now, that brings us to uh, Ryan's basic achievement. We're on the home stretch now. I, th I, th I think we're pretty much going over my personally allotted time, but who cares? This is so fascinating. <laughs> 
Actually, it kind of makes you sick. <laughs> uh, now, what was Ryan's achievement? He managed to reinterpret Rerum Novarum in a way that was never intended by Pope Leo XIII, and this from things in the encyclical itself. He just simply contradicted him. He reoriented moral philosophy along modernist lines, you know, by shifting from the intellect to the will for the, as the basis of natural law, you can get anything you want. As Heinrich Roman pointed out in his book on the natural law, this opens the gates to pure moral relativism, even nihilism. I mean, anything goes. And as we see today, anything goes. When you can have a prospective candidate for the president of the United States claim to be a traditional practicing Catholic and go against everything the Catholic Church teaches, well, why not? You can justify it because it's God's will. And he instituted socialism and fascism by changing their names and then just calling them authentic Catholic teaching. So who cares what a thing really is? If you can change the name and convince people it's authentic Catholic teaching, you can have anything you want, which of course is the end justifies the means, pure moral relativism, the new things have taken over completely. I realize I sound like commies under the bed, in which case this is modernists under the bed, but I have a platform bed so they can't get under there. Okay, now, how did he do it? How did Monsignor Ryan succeed in allegedly changing Catholic doctrine? I have had people tell me, you know, presumably Catholic intellectuals, well, the Catholic Church has changed its teachings, just like what Monsignor Ryan said. Look at Henry George, look at Father Edward McGlynn. So basically you're telling me that the Catholic Church is lying when it says that it has never changed the doctrine. Well, you just don't understand. You're right, I don't. I'm stupid. I'm just a member of Mensa. I graduated from one of the top universities in this country, Catholic universities, University of Notre Dame. I attended one of the best business schools to get my MBA in Indiana, the University of Evansville, which is, it really was, at least when I was there, top ranked in business. And uh, I'm director of research for the Center for Economic and Social Justice, but I just don't understand. And I admit it. I don't see how something can both be and not be at the same time under the same conditions. And no one's gonna dignify you with a response either. You bet they won't. <laughs> I did I I did I ever tell you about the time I saw this one priest sprint away from me? I mean, come on. Are you that so unsure of your arguments that you can't even say hello? What do you think I'm gonna do? Launch into a tirade about Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus and everything? <laughs> Maybe I will, but <laughs> if I get the chance, who knows? Anyway. How did Monsignor Ryan do it? Admittedly, he was a consummate church politician. His, he had a highly developed political skill. And we'll really see this in, in what I planned for the next episode. He also had a conviction that the end justifies the means. If he thought the end was desirable, who cares what, there, there are no absolutes. There are no moral absolutes as if it gets in the way of what you want. The end justifies the means. He was utterly ruthless, and he had a giant ego, and we'll see that later. And possibly the biggest thing, and this is the most dangerous thing, and it's still with us today, 
there was a desire on the part of the Catholic hierarchy, the clergy and intellectuals to cover up and avoid controversy. If you ignore it, it will go away. Well, no, I think we both have in mind something that's been happening in recent years. It didn't go away. It got worse and it keeps getting worse. And nowhere was this seen better in the, in the 20th century than in Catholic social teaching where if you didn't stomp out the, the modernism, the socialism and the new age influence, it was going to keep on going because most people didn't understand Catholic social teaching. They believed what they were told. And it is glib, it is plausible. Monsignor Ryan was a great writer. He could present garbage in a way that anybody would swallow it. The first couple of times I read his books, I thought, hey, this is great. But then you start examining what has to be behind those statements and you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. You can't just accept it, you have to think about it. I remember someone telling me that the Abrahamic religions, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, are thinking religions. You have to think about what you're doing. You can't just accept everything on faith. Your faith and your reason have to be, have to go together. It's not faith or reason, it's faith and reason. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people, even those who say that, keep going back to faith mm -hmm. and try to justify everything by saying, well, it must be true because I believe it. Well, you, that's not why it's true. It's true because you can prove it. And that is why, you know, faith applies to that which is not manifestly true. In other words, it's not obvious. You can't prove it. But it also can't, you know, contradict that which you can prove, that which is manifestly true. This is why faith is above reason. But reason is the foundation of faith. What you behold by faith cannot contradict what you know by reason. Mm -hmm. This is why the Catholic Church teaches as a fundamental doctrine that knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law written in the hearts of all men can be known by the force and light of human reason alone. Now, as Chesterton pointed out, yes, most people don't have the time to figure this stuff out, so they are forced to you know, accept it on faith. But they have to acknowledge, even as they accept everything on faith, that it can be accepted on reason alone and that your faith cannot contradict reason. And I just flipped something upside down that I needed up right side up. Uh, so basically the bottom line is that his political skill, his conviction that the end justifies the means, his utter ruthlessness, his ego, plus the desire on the part of the people in charge to avoid controversy and unpleasantness and to cover up problems, hoping they'll go away. Uh, so that what happened was that in conclusion, and this is summed up by a historian, Eric Frederick Goldman, who was favorable to Ryan. And when you stop to think about what he said in Ryan's defense and in praise of him, it doesn't sound good at all. Uh, he says, and this is a direct quote from Goldman's book, uh, Rendezvous with Destiny, which is quite, it was a bestseller, I think. Uh, 
Ryan proceeded to apply the Ramrum Novarum in a way scarcely distinguishable from the reformed Darwinists of Protestants and Jews. In other words, basically you know, what radical liberalism, socialism and fascism. So after Ryan had been hurling the Ramrum Novarum at his enemies for years, in other words, he was being persecuted, but notice that he never brought up the endorsements of Gibbons and Ireland to refute those enemies mm -hmm. and put them in their place. It says, a reform-minded rabbi uh, achieved a masterpiece of superfluity by saying to the priest, you have a very great advantage over the men in my position. You can hang your radical utterances on a papal encyclical. And according to an Orthodox rabbi, I know he says some of those rabbis are not really all that Jewish. <laughs> says, yes, I suppose there is something to that, said Father Ryan, smiling. Now, a smile, and I have to comment, or a smirk. Sometimes there isn't that much difference between the two. And you say, in spite of, how did he do this? Well, we'll see in our next episode what he did to Fulton J. Sheen that shows the sort of tactics that Ryan used to make certain that people went along with his understanding of Catholic teaching, not anyone else's, especially the Catholic churches. All right. Well, Michael, as always, thank you for that. And uh, yes, comment below. Tell us how you like it. If you like, we didn't laugh as much today, so no one can uh, crit and critique us for that part. But well, it gets pretty grim. Yes. And it, trust me, it gets worse. <laughs> uh, I got uh, well, Michael's website linked underneath too. If anybody wants to go to it, just in the show notes underneath the video, check out his uh, blog and uh, his books that he ran. All right, Mike, we'll talk to you later. Okay. <laughs>